Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The History of England, episode 313, England is Ours. We have finally reached that stage, dental listeners, where the gunnels of the Great Armada begin to loom in the view ahead, or might we better say, the Anglo-Spanish War. So, we are going to spend the next few episodes on that almost 20-year-long conflict before returning to the more social history sort of stuff, witchcraft, the 1590s, crisis of poverty and the poor law, crime, some architecture in the great rebuilding, and then we've politics too in Elizabeth and her last favourite Essex and of course the Nine Years' War in Ireland. So tell me that isn't a cornucopia of historical delight. Now then, I may have bored you before with the observation that while many people complain that they never did any history at school apart from the Tudors, I do not remember doing anything on the Tudors at all. Except for one thing, the Armada. Now that I do remember. I remember constructing comprehensive lists of Spanish ships and the amount of biscuits they had available. Though to be honest, I can't remember much more other than that. Other than it was a home win, largely because of the weather. And that we lived happily ever after. So when I came to start reading up about the whole business, it was interesting as normal, proper historians and journalists trying to scrape together a living, honest or not, complain resentfully of various myths, as though the myths had been purposefully constructed in order to visit some awful injustice on someone or other, and that we must clear our minds. But I have to admit that I personally did 
have a few misconceptions. So here's a short list, and you can tell me what horrors of historical injustice I have missed. The first is the Armada sits out rather on its own as one event, although maybe alongside some international barbering duty that Drake undertook with his beard singeing. I really was only very dimly aware that what we have here is a very long war indeed, from something like 1585, although no one actually fired a starting gun so who knows, all the way through to 1604, when an end date was officially stamped in what was effectively a score draw. The next one was that I was only vaguely aware of what an international affair it all was. I mean, obviously I realised we were fighting Spain and they weren't a district of Wiltshire and all that, but the critical importance of the Dutch revolt in bringing on the war, the role of the Dutch in how it turned out, the importance of the French religious wars and the threat of Ireland as a strategic backdoor into England had rather escaped me. So that was also interesting to read about. And thirdly, there's the actual Armada conflict itself. I seem to remember getting the strong impression from my list of available biscuits that the Spanish fleet was old, leaky and badly organised, and the English ran rings round them. But the Spanish ships were so enormous that our cannonballs got stuck in their hulls and wouldn't go through. So we had to wait for the wind, and that saved us from certain destruction. That is essentially it, as far as the Anglo-Spanish War is concerned. I do not blame my teachers. I was without doubt thinking of something else. After all, this was the 11 to 14 period, and all I can remember from lessons in that period of my life was Malthusian theory, and that was because we got new exercise books that day. But I suspect most of my preconceptions may be shared with others. Oh, along with Francis Drake playing bowls and ignoring the Armada until he was good and ready. So now I have the chance to put some of that right and put the conflict into its proper perspective, although I can tell you that I nailed the biscuit thing, which I now understand to be akin to the biscuits and gravy that Grandpa Walton liked. Let me reassure you, though, I remember being unapologetic about spending three episodes on Agincourt, and honestly, I can't find it within my heart to apologise for that, but I'll try not to do that to you on the Armada itself. Not quite. Now then, we have spoken before about the torturous choices Elizabeth had to make in order to drive her foreign policy. Her objectives were all about walking a line so thin that even Lindsay Buckingham would have blenched. She relied on that hardy perennial to keep England safe, the rivalry between Habsburg and Valois. She wanted a return to the status quo ante as far as the Netherlands were concerned, the preservation of a loose and weak Habsburg authority with religious toleration for Protestants. The French must be allowed to support the rebels, but must not, under any circumstances, be allowed to dominate the Netherlands. Just so far sort of thing, but no further, not too far. The argument has always been that Elizabeth was not interested in being a Protestant champion and that she was as mean as Mousheit with the money. But the evidence is a bit equivocal on that. Elizabeth acted constantly on the side of the Netherlands, reluctantly and rather meanly maybe, but she never decided to abandon their cause. Her support for French Protestants was also reasonably constant. The survivor of Protestantism 
was definitely on the list of things that weighed on Elizabeth's mind, even if it wasn't at the top in some evangelical sort of way. She also had the view of her people to bear in mind, and many of them were desperate for Elizabeth to don her finest armour, seize the Excalibur of Protestantism from its sheath, and challenge the Catholic world to single combat to the death. The Lord Admiral of Devon, for example, declared a sense of fellowship with the Dutch rebels. We be embarked all in one ship. If they, the wilds, make a wreck, may we be safe? Sink or swim together, as it were. As far as the Privy Council was concerned, there were hawks in the form of Leicester, for example, and doves in the form of Burley. I say dove, chicken might be a better fowl analogy. Burley was plenty prot, as we know, but was very worried about attracting the attention of the big beast, Spain. Now, Philip II of Spain wanted rid of Elizabeth and her heresies gone. But Elizabeth was quite right in thinking that he was much more worried about France than that small, damp place off the coast that he'd been king of once upon a time. So, while encouraging various plots against Elizabeth, it took him a while to walk the path of war. So, what we have then is a sort of phony war. Elizabeth carrying out raids on the Spanish colonial empire and in support of French Protestants that were sort of deniable. I mean, not very credibly deniable, it has to be said, but at a level where it was just about possible to keep a straight face. And Elizabeth was a master at keeping a straight face when confronted by the horrid truth and in confounding and boulderizing ambassadors. And so it went through the 1570s. So what changed? Well, English vulnerability in Ireland became more acute. At Smerwick, the Spanish showed that they would contemplate actually landing their troops in Elizabeth's domains. And the Fitzmaurice revolt in Ireland de-established the English still further. Meanwhile, Spain went from strength to strength. In 1580, Philip became king of Portugal as well as Spain by right of his wife, and resistance in favour of her Portuguese pretender was pretty feeble, retreating only to the Azores. The acquisition brought enormous wealth to the Habsburg crown with all Portugal's overseas empire and a fleet well-designed and used to fighting in the Atlantic. In 1582-3, a Spanish fleet also crushed the remaining Portuguese in the Azores. It was a particularly important moment because the Marquis de Santa Cruz, victor of Lepanto, rather demonstrated that reports of the feebleness of the Spanish fleet in Atlantic warfare had been horribly exaggerated, and in fact, they were really rather good. Philip, by the way, when he adopted a joint Portuguese and Spanish coat of arms, chose the rather ominous motto, presumably inspired by future Jimmy Bond movies, Orbis non sufficit, or the world is not enough. It is not the motto of a shy and retiring man looking to promote world peace and focus on his needlework. Many of his most powerful subjects also saw the significance of the acquisition of Portugal. The captains who accompanied the Marquis of Santa Cruz said openly that now we have Portugal, England is ours. 
and little by little we shall gain France also. So, reasonably ambitious then. But to understand why the amp was turned up to 11, we need to understand the situation both in France, but more importantly in the Netherlands. France first then. By 1584, the Catholic League, led by the Duke of Guise, was in the ascendant. They had complete control of the king, Henry III. His younger brother and heir, the Duke of Anjou, Elizabeth's frog, died in 1584, and the next in line to the throne was a man called Henry of Navarre, Henry III's ninth cousin, would you believe? So, you know, never give up hope of securing a throne. It could happen. The Guise forced Henry III to disbar Navarre from the throne as a Protestant, though, and France was now an armed camp between Catholic and Protestant. The point about all of this was that while Philip was at least partly engaged in that war in France on the side of the Guise and the Catholic League, of course, more relevant is the fact that France no longer presented much of a threat to him. So, that enabled Philip to focus more time and more cash on the revolt in the Netherlands. Now, the Netherlanders had been most successful by and large in maintaining their independence, and that distracted Philip from satisfying the Pope's constant demands to take down Elizabeth. But if the revolt of the Netherlands went to eat the fishes, well, who know what Philip might do next? Now, I also have some apparently false preconceptions about the Dutch revolt, and I'd like to start by apologising about my use of general naming. I'm kind of aware that Holland does not mean the Netherlands, it's just one province of it, but I'm unaware if there's an alternative to the general name of the people as the Dutch. I have looked, but I have not found, so if I'm messing it up, I'm sorry. Anyway, my preconception of the Dutch revolt was of a glorious revolt against tyranny of a united people against the European superpower of the time. A glorious history of liberty, which may owe something to a shared Protestantism and a well-practiced ability by the English to ignore the parallels between the Dutch and the Irish. Anyway, around 1577, the Dutch Revolt had been at its height, combining most of the towns of modern Belgium, similar to the county of Flanders we've been talking about for so many centuries, and the Netherlands. The revolt had proved just how difficult it was to succeed against the rebels, with a vast number of highly fortified towns surrounded by seas or rivers, many of them islands or peninsulas, I have a quote for you from an English traveller of the time, which, just to warn you, includes the use of the word buttock, and therefore must be good. He described the Low Countries as The great bog of Europe. There is not such another marsh in the world that's flat. They are a universal quagmire. Indeed, it is the buttock of the world, full of veins and blood, but no bones in it. Philip II of Spain and his military leader, the Duke of Alba, had devoted vast treasure to reclaiming the provinces, sending hardened troops along the 700-mile route through Switzerland and the eastern France to reach the Low Countries, the so-called Spanish Road. But by 1577, the Prince of Orange effectively ruled a national government from Brussels responsible to the States General or Parliament. So things were cooking. But 
There arrived in 1578 a new governor by the name of Alexander Farnese, the Duke of Parma. Parma was a ruler in his own right and used income from Parma in Italy to fund his grand court of 1,500 people. He was related to Philip and therefore an ideal choice as governor of the Netherlands because he was able to speak with Philip on level terms. And he might well just have been a bona fide, honest-to-goodness, 24-carat military genius. By 1581, Palmer had drawn back several of the southern provinces into the Spanish camp by diplomacy, by exploiting the divisions between Calvinists and Catholics, by bribery, causing many towns to surrender to him, and by his peerless and by now well-stocked army of Flanders of 60,000 men. From 1581, Palmer planned to capture the Flanders coast below Antwerp, to control the rivers and starve towns of their trade and capture the great prize, the city of Antwerp, centre of northern European trade. As Palmer got ready to launch his strategy, far from being the magnificent and bravely united rebels of my imagination, the states were a complete mess, shorn of leadership. For much of the time, they had no leader at all, except when the Duke of Anjou became their governor-general for a while, before crashing and burning, because he was trying with his French troops to take control of ten Dutch cities. In 1581-4, Palmer captured swathes of towns in the southern provinces, most of which were never again lost to Spain. In the face of this onslaught, the states bickered amongst themselves, and town after town surrendered until their big one itself, Antwerp, was threatened directly. Palmer started construction of a huge bridge downstream from Antwerp across the Scheldt, cutting Antwerp off from trade and military support. Covert English help was on the Elizabethan model, i.e. covert, half-hearted and deniable, and honestly, largely useless, or indeed worse. In February 1584, the town of Alst surrendered to Palmer, delivered to him by its English garrison. In July 1584, a second assassination attempt against the Prince of Orange succeeded this time, and the states were left in chaos. So, faced with this international situation, in October, October 1584, the English Privy Council held a series of meetings and I have no doubt that in this story of peril and failure around the table, many a noble buttock was clenched. Spain had, though covertly, multiple times demonstrated their aggressive intent towards England, even to the point, as we've said, of sending soldiers to Ireland at Smerwick. France was in a mess and after Anjou's miserable failure and death, it was helpless and under the control of the Catholic League. Spain was empowered and strengthened, both financially and militarily, by the control of Portugal. Seriously, it did not look good. It did not look good at all. And the worst news of all had come to them from the fastness of the Escorial in Spain. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The massive palace of Escorial was built by Philip over 20 years around the site of the monastery church of San Lorenzo at the foot of the mountains above the originally tiny village of Escorial. The church at the centre breathed the spirit of the Counter-Reformation. The palace around it reflected Philip's faith that he stood at the centre of the temporal power of the church. Despite its size, the Escorial contained school, library, workshop, hospital, monastery, and so there was really no space for the vast horde of courtiers and supplicants who would like to have demanded Philip's attention, and did so when he ventured out to Madrid or Valladolid. But then Philip liked his courtiers at arm's length at the Escorial, because we all know that courtiers, just like customers, get in the way of a good day's work. Philip was an austere, secretive, even self-effacing man in some ways. When he attended the wedding of his daughter in Savoy in 1585, for example, everyone put on their Sunday best, except the king, who looked very ordinary, dressed in black, just like the citizens. Philip felt uncomfortable when he had to stand out. In Zaragoza one day, he met a religious procession coming towards him. He stepped back into the crowd and kneeled among them all, praying bareheaded until the procession had passed. He was deeply pious in a slightly obsessive way, though in that, of course, Philip was hardly alone in the 16th century. But you might find it a bit odd if I tell you that Philip possessed 7,422 relics, including 12 entire bodies, 144 heads and 306 complete limbs. He had an absolute faith that God was on his side and would sort matters out for him. Here is but one example of this. When his plans for the invasion of England were criticised by Palmer, he wrote back, We are quite aware of the risk that is incurred by sending a major fleet in winter through the Channel without a safe harbour, but since it is all for his cause, God will send good weather. Philip and Elizabeth had vastly different, shall we say, management styles. Elizabeth was a nightmare to work for, I would imagine, but she was thoroughly part of her court. She would meet individually with many of her counsellors and then leak the conversation to others to see what their reaction was. She was at her happiest when her advisers were divided so that she could decide or prevaricate. When they were united... She'd throw a tantrum to avoid making decisions she didn't think needed to be made just yet. She had a deep confidence in her own ability, but nonetheless most of the work of planning and execution was done for her by the extremely able and long-serving Privy Council. Philip, meanwhile, lacked any level of this collaborative and consultative approach. At the heart of the Escorial, right next to the monastery church, lies a rather small suite of rooms. There is a workroom there, rather small, and an alcove bedroom, with shuttered windows opening onto the interior of the church. It's almost 
a retreat, a hiding place. And yet it was here, hidden away among the vast complex, that Philip ruled his empire from his desk, usually working for eight or nine hours a day. All orders of any significance must be signed directly by his hand, and he would regularly get through more than 40 reports and memoranda every day. Although he was absolutely prepared to receive and consider advice and reports, his decision-making process did not involve discussion and the taking of views and making then a corporate decision. If caught in open water and forced to attend a meeting, he would say little. The Renaissance equivalent of the colleague who contributes nothing to a meeting, apart maybe for asking for a custard cream on one or two occasions. Philip made the decision, he made it alone, and once made, everyone must obey. And the empire he ruled from his desk was incredibly complex. Now I am aware of cheating slightly with you lot, because in the interests of aggrandizing the level of threat facing little old England, I have rather emphasised the size of the Habsburg Empire. But I should note, in the words of Spider-Man, with great power came great commitments. Philip's income was vast, but his commitments were also vast and wide-flung. He rarely felt flush with cash. Obviously, the treasure fleets were enormously toe-curlingly valuable, but usually they were all fully spoken for when they arrived, mortgaged to service the massive debt several years ahead. So extensive were Philip's commitments that his empire would go bankrupt several times. There is a written exchange with one of his personal secretaries that went like this. The private secretary, pitying his master's work rate, wrote, If God had meant your majesty to remedy all the troubles of the world, he would have given you the money and strength to do it. Philip wrote in reply, I know you mean well, but these are not matters that can be abandoned, because the cause of religion takes priority over everything. It's a very revealing note from Philip. It reflects the vast range of commitments and Philip's dedication to doing every single thing, and the personal fact that though his secretary would be in hailing distance from him, this is a written exchange, not a quick chat on the balcony over a fag and a cup of tea. Anyway, the point of all this, apart from giving you a little colour, is that the English Privy Council learned something in 1584. They learned that Philip had been planning an invasion. He had the advice of his greatest of generals, the Marquis of Santa Cruz, who composed a vastly detailed plan for an amphibious force to land an invasion of 55,000 troops on the shores of England. As part of the 150-ship armada, there would be a critical squadron of 40 galleys. This aspect came from Santa Cruz's experience of the amphibious landings at the Azores. The galleys would be crucial for the inshore work to keep the English navy away from the vulnerable troops on the many shallow-drafted flyboats that they would need. Meanwhile, Palmer's opinion was also sought. He favoured a sneak attack, launched from the Netherlands with 30,000 troops relying on surprise to get across the narrow seas. Quite how he expected to achieve surprise with everyone talking about the possible invasion and a permanent English squadron guarding against such a crossing, Palmer did not explain. Even Philip noticed the flaw in the plan, 
scrawling by their need for surprise the words, Hardly possible. The conclusion in 1583 was that it would be better to wait until the Netherlands was conquered and all done, and then the attention could be turned to England, an invasion carried out, and a new monarch installed. And so for the moment it rested. But of course for the English Privy Council, this was electric news. Darn it, they thought, that's a bit of a blow. So they considered their options, and two bodies of thought appeared. One group were in favour of the turtle approach. Develop that carapace of our fleet and defy the Spaniards to get through it, while we chill in wet East Sussex and wave our Mai Tais at the Spanish stuck on their ships while we party. But the other side said that this would not do, not one little bit. We cannot let the Dutch sink without us. If they do, however many Mai Tais we knock back, eventually we'll be next. And anyway, what about the cause of Protestantism? No, we must put boots on the ground in the Netherlands. And anyway, here's the thing. If we are a little more aggressive, we can make a few quid as well carrying war to Spain's colonial empire. Courage, mes brave, courage. Fortune favours the bold. This plan, presented by Walsingham, was called the plot for annoying of the King of Spain. And it was this plan that Elizabeth went for, and the suggestion of an alliance went off to the Dutch. But they at this stage were hopeful of a better offer, that Henry III of France would become their leader, but in March 1585, Henry refused that offer, and so those events rested as well. So in April and May 1585, Philip and Elizabeth rather unexpectedly fired the starting gun of war. I mean, as I said, there were no actual declarations of war, and Philip's action this time in other circumstances might not have precipitated war either. But this was the boot up the collective backside that led Spain and England to lurch finally into open war. In April, Elizabeth declared an embargo on all trade with the Spanish Netherlands. In retaliation, Philip issued a decree confiscating all English goods and shipping in Iberian harbours, which was sort of upping the ante a bit. A captured Spanish captain confirmed Philip's intention that Hearing that the Hollanders seek aid in England and fearing that they shall be aided, King Philip meaneth by this arrest to fear the English from aiding them. They also intercepted a letter from a Spanish merchant which spoke of the state of war that exists between the two kingdoms. So, that all sounds like a starting gun then. We are off and the races shall not be wacky. Burley noted that the plan now committed England to sustain a greater war than ever in any memory of man it hath done. Which sounds like a little bit of an echo of the famous Edward Grey words in World War I that the lamps are going out all over Europe and we shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. By June 1585 then, one of the doors into England had been sealed through the defensive alliance agreed with the Scottish king James VI. Walter Raleigh's brother attacked a Spanish fleet off the Newfoundland almost immediately. Drake was allowed to provision a fleet with 1,600 men to sail from Plymouth and take war to destroy Spanish shipping. 
but most importantly, in August, Elizabeth concluded the treaty with the Dutch. The Treaty of Nonsuch, made at Henry VIII's palace, provided for Elizabeth to send an army of 4,000 foot and 500 horse, though by the end of the year there would be 8,000 troops in the Netherlands paid for by England. They would also pay the States General £127,000 towards the cost of the war, and they would provide a Governor-General, namely Leicester. But, no thank you, Elizabeth turned down the generous offer of the Crown of the Netherlands. The troops under commanders Sir John Norris and Leicester began to arrive just before Christmas 1585, desperate to save Antwerp, which was now wobbling. Earlier that year, desperate efforts had been made to destroy that Spanish bridge, almost achieved by floating bombs fiendishly designed by an Italian engineer called Giambelli, which exploded on impact with the bridge, killing 800 Spanish and so traumatic that they were described as hell burners. Now look, I think we have established the principle of this podcast. You get three episodes on Agincourt and a brief mention of Formigny and Gesclin. You get a day on Rourke's Drift, two minutes on Iselwanda. So you will be not hearing much of the military exploits of Leicester and Norris, and that might give you a clue on how well they perform. They failed to save Antwerp, which fell to the Spanish despite the Hellburners, to be followed by the fall of the remaining cities of Brabant to the Spanish machine. From there on in, things frankly got worse for Leicester. He was supposed to establish strong central authority, but frankly, he made a bit of a hash of it. Not all his fault. Holland and Zealand in particular were opposed to anything which would strengthen central authority away from their provincial control. And then in 1587, when he was in the middle of all these negotiations, he was recalled to help the Queen decide what she should do with Mary Queen of Scots. And while he was away, two Catholic English commanders decided that now was the right time to betray their country, and one surrendered the town of Deventer to the Spanish, and the other a critical fort near Zutphen. Seriously, in technical terms, what a bunch of clowns, and I feel tempted to use that staple phrase of English journalism, you couldn't make it up. The Dutch were bemused at all this coming and going and must have wondered if the English were a help or a hindrance. Thomas Wilkes recorded that there grew a wonderful alteration in the hearts and affections of the people against the English. They uttered lewd and irreverent speeches of His Excellency and the whole nation. Well, I have to say that you haven't made it until you've been subject to lewd and irreverent speeches. I get lewd and irreverent speeches all the time from my lot. But seriously, the English and specifically Elizabeth's behaviour to the Dutch was more than a little dispiriting, half-hearted, changeable, inconstant. In 1588, desperate to avoid the fall of the Spanish boot on the delicate English neck, she even opened peace negotiations with Palmer, in which Palmer had no authority whatsoever to deal, but kept it going anyway to keep the English and the Dutch confused and at odds. And yet, Whatever the stresses and strains, both Dutch and English knew they would sink or swim together. So while all this was going on, Drake had been released from Plymouth with his 23 ships and 1,600 men. There were many similarities with previous Drake expeditions. 
He was aimed at the Caribbean, for example, but also this was a voyage largely funded by private enterprise. Now, this is a critical feature of Elizabethan war at sea, that overlap and partnership between private and state involvement in a national war. It is often commented on with deep disapproval by commentators. It is chaotic, surely, to carry on a war in such a way. And certainly, it resulted in mixed objectives, which did cause enormous problems. Drake had to think of making a return for his investors, as well as meeting his Queen's strategic objectives. It would need to change in the longer term, but we might just reflect that Elizabeth funded a war against the greatest power in Europe for over 20 years without leaving a massive debt to her successor. So, you know, it had its positive sides too. However, there were also differences in this latest Drake expedition and his earlier ones. One of the big ones was that the Queen had made an honest man of him. He now carried the Queen's commission and was no longer a pirate. And with his fleet went two of the Queen's ships, so she was open about her support. The other difference lay in the inconvenience that he was told not to make money, although, you know, name me the Queen of England who didn't like a bob or two. But this time he had a strategic objective to meet. This had been defined by Walsingham's paper that to defeat Spain, England would need to cut Philip's sinews of war. So the mission must destroy his Caribbean trade and with any luck capture that blessed floater treasure fleet. Drake sailed first to Spain. As it happens, he attacked Vigo and Bayona on the Spanish coast and even held them for two weeks while the Spanish failed to respond militarily. Then he sailed on and in November captured a town at the Cape Verde Islands off West Africa. By January 1586, he'd arrived in the Caribbean and captured Santo Domingo. Next, it was Cartagena's turn to be sacked and captured. But he did miss the blessed floater by a few hours. And so then on to Florida, pick up some dispirited settlers from Coatan and back home by June 1586. Now look. Philip, as I keep saying, was the most powerful man in the world jealous of his reputation and jealous of the reputation of his military prowess and colonial empire. And to a degree, his power rested on that reputation. Rested on that reputation to inspire, to enforce obedience and intimidate potential enemies and rebels. The shock of Drake's campaign to the psychology of the imperial Habsburgs was profound. Drake had captured and held a string of imperial towns with complete impunity. Not only that, but he had visited the humiliation of seizing cities on Spanish soil, and again, there'd be nothing Imperial Spain could do about it. A wave of panic swept through the Caribbean, disrupting trade, fertilising investment in new fortifications. Elizabeth's intention might have been to make war harder for Philip to win, but without doubt, Drake's voyage made war inevitable, if it hadn't been already. In 1586, Philip, as I say, had two plans on his desk. One from his greatest naval commander, Santa Cruz, to take a massive fleet with 55,000 men to the west country of England, land them and crush the feeble English army like grapes. <laughs> the other plan, 
came from Palmer, his greatest land-based general, to sneak 30,000 men across the channel from the army of the Netherlands and crush the English heretics like grapes. And I say again, wah, wah, wah. At this point, there was no council of war to thrash out the pros and cons. Instead, Philip listened to a third option from an experienced strategist who had been co coordinating naval campaigns on the Mediterranean for over 20 years, Don Juan de Zuniga. Don Juan identified some problems with Santa Cruz's plan, that it required both the recruitment and payment of a fleet and of a new army. The problem with Palmer's plan was sneak across the channel with 30,000 men on the naval equivalent of paper plates designed to carry jelly and ice cream in the face of the English Navy. And let it be noted that big and powerful though Imperial Spain was, they were not overconfident. They had enormous respect for the English Navy, probably more than it deserved. But in 1586, one of them remarked that all that I have heard from the experts is that the great strength of the English is at sea, so that your Majesty's fleet will have to be much stronger than what they can gather in those waters. So, Philip and John Juan came up with an alternative plan. Let's combine the best of both, they concluded. We will indeed send a fleet from Spain. It will go and land an army in Ireland. Meanwhile, Palmer will hop across the channel with the army of Flanders. Palmer would then defeat and capture Elizabeth. She would be issued a severance notice and a replacement monarch with the correct religious affiliation would be selected by a proper recruitment process. If, horror of horrors, Palmer couldn't capture Elizabeth, he could negotiate. Complete religious toleration for Catholics, English troops out of the Netherlands and the places they garrisoned to be surrendered to Spain. This plan, the Enterprise of England, as it became known, should be carried out in August or September the following year, 1587. Cry Harry, or rather, cry Pip and St James. The evaluations of this plan are as wide and as varied as shells on the beach. For some historians it was, in the words of Rosie and Jim, completely potty-noggin and stood not a snowball's chance in hell of succeeding. To others, egad, it came within an ace of succeeding. Just a few things had fallen differently. We'd all be speaking Spanish right now and we'd have some decent tapas for a change. However you hang it, and I guess we'll see next time, there were a few things poorly defined. How was Palmer's army to get to the fleet of deep water ships from the land? How would two massive forces get to meet up at the right place and the right time. Well, we'll find out how the story unfolds next time. That will be in two weeks' time as it happens, but if you get bored, can I remind you that there are around 80 hours of podcast listening available if you become a member of the History of England on an array of topics from how landscape shaped the lives of Anglo-Saxons to the roots of religious conflict and the growth of toleration in Europe to a history of Scotland, the lives of Eleanor of Aquitaine, Margaret of Beaufort. I could go on. The world is a lobster that belongs to the History of England member. Plus, you get an average of 90 minutes new every month. All for 40 quid a year or £4 a month. There can be few chips so cheap.
Also, you'll make me very happy. So, to join up, go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and click on Become a Member. Meanwhile, to all of you, thank you for your comments and reviews. To my members past, present and future, special and everlasting thanks. And thanks to all of you for listening. Good luck and have a great couple of weeks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 